Hi there, Misfits. This is Kate. And this is Matt. Welcome to Horrorwood. those of you who know him, he needs no introduction, but since most of you have no idea who that is, if you've <laughs> listened to us from the beginning, then you've heard me mention him a couple of times. It's my personal chef and dog dad to Frankie. It's my fella Matt. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I Good guess morning. I should say morning. It's, it's, well, I guess it's technically. But no, it's definitely morning. It's 730 <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> We, we we tried to do this last night, but we were cursed. We were cursed. This so we're talking about the Viper Room today, and there is a curse in the Viper Room, and it affected this episode because this was supposed to come out last week. And if you saw my post, uh, you saw that there was a tire blowout on the freeway. There were tornadoes. I was in the basement of my mom's house. There's a lot happening. And so last night we tried to do this and turns out Matt doesn't update his computer. And therefore it took <laughs> about five hours for him to do an update just so that he could get this thing going. Yeah. But I love yeah. you and it's okay. There were some problems. So <laughs> apologies for the delay. We're here. I'm excited to bring you this episode. I've been working on it for a while. Uh, before we get started, though, I do want to say thank you to everyone who listened to our Christina Grimmie episode, which was the last one that we posted. Uh, we got a big response from that. And if you haven't donated to uh, the foundation yet, you can do so at ChristinaGrimmieFoundation.org. Or you can shop for merch, which all of those proceeds go to the foundation as well at Christi ChristinaGrimmie.store. And... Um, yeah, that's all the little biz nasty I need to take care of. We're just gonna we're gonna jump right on into it because I'm worried something's gonna happen with the tech. Know, so we gotta I go. Know. We gotta do this. It's the curse of the Viper Room. The Viper Room, one of the most famous and infamous Hollywood hotspots with a rich and sordid history dating back decades. I usually keep the topic that I'm going to do a secret from my co-host until we are recording, but I didn't know Matt was going to be my co-host. So I already told him what we were doing. He knows maybe like one or two facts, but that's it. And by now he's probably forgotten about them. I know. I know so much. I know so much <laughs> about the Viper. <laughs> you know very little. I know that there's, there's at least seven Vipers in the room. Uh, you are you making know, shit up. You don't know where they are at any at any given time. <laughs> You're so full of it. Did you ever go to the Viper Room? I when did. You were in LA? I did. You and did? It, it, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I didn't go inside. So I I wanted to see it because I knew it was going to be changing over soon, unfortunately. And I wanted to see. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I wanted to see the Viper Room. So, uh, you know, it's just it's on this this stretch of sunset where there's a lot of older buildings and it's small, like the, it, the exterior at least um, was not what I was anticipating, but yeah, 
there's also though a, a vibe there that is creepy um i was there at night and and oh yeah yeah it, i mean la is a very different place at night and uh definitely that area feels a little transformed once the sun goes down for sure that's part of why i never went there and i feel like i missed my opportunity when i was living in la because I don't know. I was I was sort of past my clubbing days and because I used to be a clubber and <laughs> I I don't know. I knew about like some of the tragedies and stuff that occurred there. And I was just whenever I would drive by, I'd be like oh, the Viper Room. But now I'm like, damn it. I wish I'd gone. But we're going to talk about it because um, it wasn't always the Viper Room. The building that houses it was built in 1921 and is one of the oldest buildings on the Sunset Strip. It began as a grocery store known as Young's Market, which was a chain in Los Angeles. Yeah. Just selling some pears and oranges at what would become the Viper Room. Back then, that area of Sunset Boulevard was just a dirt road and mainly served as a commuter route between Beverly Hills and Hollywood. By the late 1920s, however, it was starting to vibe and became sort of a celebrity playground. Casinos and nightclubs started popping up in the area, which led to a pretty zesty nightlife. And one of the things that made the area so attractive to these businesses was that the Sunset Strip, which is a 1.7 mile stretch of Sunset Boulevard, it was located in an unincorporated area of Los Angeles County and therefore did not fall under the jurisdiction of the LAPD. So they were just wild and out oh, over interesting. there. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Edge of town. So, yeah. Yeah. So they could pretty much do whatever the fuck they wanted. <laughs> For example, gambling was illegal at the time in the city of Los Angeles, but legal in unincorporated L.A. County. So things were popping. This was also during the era of prohibition. But with everything else going on in the area, do you really think people refrained from drinking? No. You know, they probably had one drink, maybe. Yeah, just just the one. Just one. Just Just one. They called it a night. yeah, just a just a vodka and soda, but easy just, on the vodka. Just easy on the vodka and some ice to water it down. Just yeah, a taste. some ice. Put some ice in that wine. Uh, no, the booze was flowing in the back rooms of these establishments. The grocery store lasted until the 1940s. Then, in June of 1946, it opened as the Cotton Club. It's said that it's got its that it got its name from the Cotton Club in New York City, and it was nicknamed the Harlem of Hollywood, but it didn't have any actual connection to the New York Club. So just not to get those confused. The Cotton Club didn't last long. It closed less than a year later and was replaced by the Greenwich Village Inn. And this is when the location started embracing what was known as, quote, the underground scene. The wild nightlife that was welcomed by its neighboring clubs and casinos. Prohibition was over. World War II had ended. There was a manufacturing boom in L.A. The city's population grew quickly, and the movie business led to a lot of economic growth. People were ready to party. I mean, they'd been partying, but now it was just out in the open. Now let's have two vodkas. (laughs) And and no ice to water that sucker down. Fill it all the way up. Yep. 
<laughs> well, the politicians in Sacramento caught wind of what was happening down in L.A. in this so-called underground scene and actually sent undercover investigators to go to the clubs and find out just what dirty deeds were taking place. The investigators reported back that they had witnessed shocking things. Inside these clubs, people had three vodkas. <laughs> three vodkas. <laughs> Inside these clubs, consenting Adult women were voluntarily taking off their clothes and getting paid to dance. Even worse, men were dressing in what was considered women's clothing and, pre and performing on stage, all while not hurting anyone in the process. What the? The nerve. How dare they? How dare they? The members of the Committee on Public Morals for Southern California, yes, that was a thing, began clutching their pearls and released a report that said, quote, those clubs down in L.A. County are being used as the gathering place for perverts and other immoral persons. Oh, all the perverts. I've been to a number of drag shows, so I guess I'm a pervert. <laughs> The committee named eight clubs, the Greenwich Village Inn being one, that they thought should have their liquor license revoked. The committee also recommended that the laws in the city of L.A., which prohibited nightclubs from offering nude dancing and cross-dressing, apply to L.A. County as well. However, nothing was done as a result of the committee's recommendations because they, along with government officials, and law enforcement all knew that many of these clubs were run by the mob and gambling, drug sales, sex work, and the so-called quote-unquote perverted entertainment were all very lucrative businesses and the mob held a lot of financial influence over the government and police force. Yeah. The club's liquor licenses were not revoked, and honestly, I think the whole investigation was all a big excuse for those committee members to have a little fun and vibe, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I'll I'll go down to LA and and check yeah. out these these perverted clubs. And they're like, hey, can I can I get one more? Hey, can, I've got some money for you. Hey, can I uh can you just take? Yeah, here's a dollar. Here's another one. I guarantee you any heterosexual male posing undercover at a strip club was not covering his eyes. My personal opinion, I'm just saying. I Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I concur. <laughs> I concur with you, Catherine. I Thank don't you, think, Matthew. I don't think they were averting their eyes. No. By the end of 1949, the Greenwich Village Inn changed ownership and it became the Rue Angel. But just a few weeks after opening, a fire broke out in the back of the building, causing what today would be about $125,000 in damages. So the Rue Angel was over before it really began. Yeah. After repairs were done on the building, it opened as the last call in September of 1950, billing itself as the rendezvous of the stars where it offered strip capades five hours nonstop of girls dancing nude and Tuesdays were all-star strip-a-thon nights so they're not that's even a, trying to hide it anymore right. 
Sidebar, that's a long time to dance, period. I mean, even with your clothes on. Correct. What if you have to pee? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is like a dance-a-thon, basically, uh, for naked people. Do you just... For naked people. <laughs> do you, do you just, just hold your pee? You That's, hold it, I guess. I, I mean, guess. That would be my concern. Yeah. So they're yeah. they're advertising this on all their flyers. They're like, yeah, we've got naked dancers. What are they going to do about it? Well, a lot, actually. Just a few months after Last Call opened, the county updated its ordinances to coincide with the city, banning nude dancing and cross-dressing. The Last Call, along with Club Flamingo, which was a drag show venue, were ordered to close. Two months later, what was the Last Call opened as the Melody Room, and it became a mainstay in the L.A. music scene for the next 18 years— the Melody Room was a jazz club that was really popular among mobsters like Mickey Cohen. After the Melody Room closed, it reopened under the name Filthy McNasties. Oh, you know, there was a Filthy McNasties in my hometown in Wait, Ohio. seriously? Yeah, there was a place called Filthy McNasties. May it rest in peace. It no longer exists. But, oh, sad. Uh, I wonder yeah. if the same guy started it because Filthy McNasty was a man, an icon, really? really, yes, of the Sunset Strip. He was born Wilfred Barch, but he had his name legally changed and more power to him. He also owned the rock club FM station. FM was obviously for Filthy McNasty, and that was located in North Hollywood. By all accounts, everyone loved Filthy. <laughs> he, he was just a really good dude. It has a great ring to it. I mean, just the just the euphony of Filthy McNasty. It just <laughs> flows. Mcna- it really. Hello, flows. nice to meet you. I'm Mr. McNasty. <laughs> and one thing he did, paging Mr. McNasty, <laughs> that had celebrities flocking to his club was he banned the use of cameras. So stars like Elvis Presley, Mick Jagger, Little Richard, John Wayne, they loved going there knowing that they could get into all kinds of shenanigans and leave with whoever they wanted, and it wouldn't be in the papers the next day. Filthy sold Filthy McNasty's in 1980 to Anthony Fox, who renamed the venue The Central. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Doesn't have the same ring. Doesn't have the same ring. But it was still a music venue. It was a place for rock and roll bands to play, hoping to get a record deal. And it was also used for filming. Oliver Stone shot scenes for his biopic on the doors there. The Go-Go's filmed their music video for Our Lips Are Sealed there. And on any given night, you might run into John Belushi. By the early 90s, however, the Central had fallen on hard times, and it was on the verge of closing. Nothing really seemed to stay open in this place for long. That's when musicians Tom Waits and Chuck E. Weiss, Chuck was a regular performer at the Central, reached out to their dear friend, Johnny Depp. Johnny was really into music. He had just formed his own band called P with three other guys, one of which was actor Sal Jinko. Sal had starred with Johnny on 21 Jump Street. Mm. And Chuck and Tom were like, hey, Johnny, you should talk to Anthony Fox and propose becoming part owner of the club. You could give it new life. 
Because Johnny was a name. He was coming off of yeah. Crybaby, 21 Jump Street, Edward Scissorhands. So he could definitely bring some clout to the club. And Johnny, having just become part of this band, needed a place to play. And what better place than a club you own? So Johnny goes to his bandmate and co-star from 21 Jump Street, Sal Jinko, and he's like, Sal, want to buy a club? So the two went into business with Anthony Fox and took 51% ownership. And Tom Waits was like, hey, you should change the name to the Viper Room because the Central sucks. And Viper was... Uh, Well, a Viper was a jazz musician, specifically in the 20s and 30s, that smoked pot. That was sort of the the definition of Viper. Oh, I I thought it was like a lot of just people who like snakes. You know, it was like a a herpetology kind of (laughs) thing. You know, it was like a herpetology society, just people who really love snakes. Just people that love snakes, speaking (laughs) in parcel tongue. Yeah. And just life. have a rotating inventory of snakes. What snakes yeah. do you have this week? This week we have a we have a yellow crate. This week uh, we've got some milk snakes. We've got. Yeah. Wait, what are milk snakes? You don't, is that real? Oh yeah, that's a real snake. All the snakes okay. I'm mentioning are real snakes. Okay, well I don't yeah. know if it's like your Mockingjay thing <laughs> where we saw a bird and I was like, uh, what kind of right. bird is that? And Matt's like, oh, that's Dear a Mockingjay. I have never been let off the hook for the Mockingjay error. And I deserve it. I deserve it. (laughs) I am a bird person. You know so much about birds. You used to work with birds. And I'm like, oh, that's a cool looking bird. What is it? He says, oh, that right there. That's a Mockingjay. Yeah, it's not a Mockingjay. Mockingjay. I'm like, bitch, that is from a book. That is from (laughs) the Hunger Games. That's not real. That wasn't a real bird. But in the end, these these were not real snakes. Just to, I don't want to burst your bubble, fair. but no, I'm I'm I I like learning that that uh, a viper was a, a a kind of musician. I didn't know that specifically that smoked pot. That was yeah. the thing about it. So Louis Armstrong, Cab Calloway, Fats Waller, Bessie Smith, all referred to themselves as vipers, and that's where the name comes from. Oh. I heard on BuzzFeed Unsolved that Arnold Schwarzenegger was also in the running to buy the bar, but Johnny Depp outbid him. He spent $350,000 for his share of the club. For Johnny Depp, the Viper Room was a dream. He had a place where his band could play. He could host private parties for his friends. He was only 30 years old, and he was living. The Viper Room opened on August 14, 1993. At Johnny's request, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers performed opening night. Wow. Two years prior, Johnny Depp was in a music video for Into the Great Wide Open. So that was their connection there. And he was like, Tom, Tommy, Thomas, come open my club. And Tom, Tommy, Thomas was like, okay, I will. <laughs> the Viper Room became a celebrity hotspot. The exterior was painted all black and there are no windows. I mean, the building had them, but they were covered. So really... It was like a private hideaway. However, just two and a half months after opening, tragedy struck. River Phoenix, who was quickly rising in the ranks of Hollywood stardom and as a teenager had already been nominated for an Oscar, went to the Viper Room for a night of music. I might do a full episode on River Phoenix, so I'm not going to go into a ton of details about his life, but I'll give an overview of of what happened that night. He was on a break from filming the movie Dark Blood. And in the days leading up to his night out at the Viper Room, he and his friend John Frusciante, who was the guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, 
went on a drug binge of cocaine and heroin. River wasn't sleeping. He was constantly high, and this lasted several days. Then John informed River he was going to be sitting in with the band P at the Viper Room and invited him to come along. River was like, cool, cool, cool. Sounds fun. I'm there. River was also hoping to play with the band on stage. He and John had actually been recording music together, and River thought it'd be cool to play at the Viper Room. On the evening of October 30th, River, accompanied by his girlfriend, actress Samantha Mathis, and two of his siblings, his sister Rain and his brother Joaquin, headed to the Viper Room. It was either shortly before or shortly after midnight when they arrived. I've seen different times listed in different sources. Inside, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers informed his friend River that the chances of him getting to play were unlikely. Johnny Depp and his band were having a jam session. They're hanging out. They don't have room to add a musician. And it's becoming clear no one else is going on that night. The band P is going to be dominating the evening. A friend of Rivers then offered him a drink. What are you laughing about? <laughs> just just the phrase, P is going to be dominating the evening. <laughs> I mean, I'm in seventh grade. I'm in seventh, eternally in seventh grade. I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> okay. A friend of Rivers then offered him a drink, and without asking what was in it, River drank it down. The drink was a liquid speedball, a mixture of cocaine and heroin. Now, this is when eyewitness accounts start to get a little skewed. Some reports say after drinking the speedball, River vomited and slumped in his chair. Some reports say he went into the bathroom and began splashing water on his face because he wasn't feeling well. Others say he went outside to get some fresh air. And some claim he got into an argument with a bouncer who then threw him out of the club. And there are also reports that it was River's siblings and girlfriend who carried River out of the club. I don't know that we'll ever be entirely clear on the details, but no matter how you spin it, River ended up outside of the club where he collapsed onto the ground and went into convulsions. That much we know for a fact. Eventually, Joaquin called 911. That call was made public and can still be found online. It is heartbreaking. Emergency crews arrived and transported River to Cedar sinai but unfortunately, they were not able to save him. He was pronounced dead at 1.51 a.m. on October 31st, 1993, at the age of 23. Wow. Johnny Depp closed the club for several days out of respect for River's family and continued to close down the club every Halloween for as long as he owned the place. Wow. I mean, that's the first, I, re, I remember that. I mean, I, I remember yeah, I that in the news. I, I mean, that was the first time I heard about the Viper Room. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it was, it was tragic. I mean, it was all my friends would talk about. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's kind of what it became known for. Mm -hmm. Mourners flocked to the Viper Room to leave flowers and to pay their respects. And many wrote messages on the door of the club. I read that Johnny actually took the door off its hinges and sent it to River's family, who were living in Florida at the time. Unfortunately, River's overdose was not the only one to occur at the Viper Room. In January of 1995, Johnny Depp hosted Kate Moss's 21st birthday party at the venue. The two of them were dating at the time. And one of the guests was Jason Donovan. He's an Australian actor and singer. 
During the party, Jason kept leaving to go to his hotel room, which was nearby, to snort lines of cocaine. And then he'd come back to the club. While at the party, he ended up having a cocaine-induced seizure. Paramedics were called, and he was rushed to Cedar sinai He survived and actually went back to the Viper Room just three hours later. What? Not to party, but to apologize to Johnny Depp for what had happened. Oh my gosh. According to Jason, Johnny said, That's cool. Don't worry. We're just pleased that you are okay. Now take some advice from me. Go to your room, get some sleep, and for God's sake, take it easy in the future. Just two years later, in 1997, Jason's friend Michael Hutchins, he is co-founder of the band NXS. He was actually with Jason when Jason overdosed. He played his last public performance at the Viper Room before taking his own life just a week later. Also in 1995, Courtney Love overdosed right outside the Viper Room, and she stated that Johnny Depp actually saved her life that night by giving her CPR. But the Viper Room is notorious for more than celebrity drug overdoses. The basement of the Viper Room became the site of an underground celebrity poker ring around 2005. At the time, Johnny Depp had relinquished his shares of the club, which we'll get into in just a bit. Darren Feinstein had become co-owner, and he was a real estate investor. Darren was approached by actor Toby Maguire, who wanted to have a high-stakes poker tournament and needed a place to host them. So Darren's like, cool, you can use the Viper Room. And Toby was like, yeah, I figured that's why I came to you. (laughs) Molly Bloom was a cocktail waitress that Darren had actually recruited to host these poker games. She would greet the players, take their buy-in money, which was easily anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000. Wow, so this was a real game. Oh, yeah. this You had some serious money. She'd get them drinks, food, whatever they needed. She was there to cater to the players. In addition to Tobey Maguire, players might include Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck, Alex Rodriguez, Rodriguez, why can't I talk? (laughs) Alex Rodriguez, directors, lawyers, basically a bunch of insanely rich dudes. After the first night of these poker games, Toby told everyone he wouldn't play again unless they used his shuffle master going forward. The Shuffle Master was a $17,000 machine that supposedly gave a completely random shuffle each time and helped speed up the game. So the next week, for the second poker game at the Viper Room, Toby brought his Shuffle Master. During the evening, there was a round in which Toby lost to a guy he didn't know. And when that other guy won the hand, Toby texted Molly and asked who the guy was. And she texted back, oh, that's so-and-so. He's an attorney. And Toby responded, I see. Molly could tell that he was not happy. So part of Molly's job was to go around delivering checks to those that won and collecting from those who had lost. So later that week, she gets to Toby's house because despite losing to that new guy, he had won other hands. Uh Uh-huh. And when she arrived, he told her he wanted to start charging rent for the Shuffle Master, the machine he insisted they use for games. He wanted to charge everyone $200 for it. So Molly started laughing because she thought he was trying to make a joke because he's taking money from these guys every week. Like, why do you need to charge them rent? Plus, she glanced around his home 
which was a freaking mansion in the Hollywood Hills, you could see straight through to the ocean. So she's like, um, okay. She looks at him and realizes he is dead serious. So she stops laughing immediately. And then he says to her, uh, there's one other thing. She wrote about this, so I'm going to read just a little excerpt. Uh, please. She writes that Toby said, I'd like to know who's playing every week. If there's going to be someone new, I would definitely like to know who it is. In advance. His words came out slowly, sounding soft on the outside, but with a sharp-edged threat at the center. She told him, no problem. And then Toby went on to say, Alrighty, talk to you later, and waved a cheerful goodbye. She said, I shook my head as I drove away. I would never understand rich people. He was pissed that he lost to that guy he didn't know. Molly said that Toby Maguire won every week. She said wow. he was the best player, the worst loser, and the worst tipper. These are Molly's words. This is not me. I'm just a podcast host. Don't sue me. <laughs> After one game, which he almost lost, it was down to him and one other guy, but he ended up winning. He walked up to Molly with a $1,000 poker chip and said, this is yours. And right as she said thanks and was getting ready to take it, he yanked it back and said, if you do something to earn these $1,000. And then he told her to get up on the table and bark like a seal who wants a fish. What? Yes. What a gross dude. So Molly starts sort of laughing nervously. All the guys at the table are right there listening. No one steps in to say anything like, hey, Toby, you're an ass. So she's just standing there embarrassed. And he holds the chip over her head and says, bark. I'm going to read you what she wrote about this incident. Toby, I said, I'm not going to bark like a seal. Keep your chip. My face was on fire. I knew he would be angry, especially because he had now engaged the whole audience and I wasn't playing his game. I was embarrassed, but I was also angry. After all I had done to accommodate this guy, I was also shocked. I had made sure I ran every detail of every game by him, changed the stakes for him, structured tournaments around him, memorized every ingredient in every vegan dish in town for him, he had won millions and millions of dollars at my table. And I had catered to his every need along the way. And now he seemed to want to humiliate me. He kept pushing it, his voice growing louder and louder. The other guys were starting to look uncomfortable. No, I said again, willing him to drop it. He gave me an icy look, dropped the chip on the table, and tried to laugh it off, but he was visibly angry. Wow. So um, he's an ass. Yeah. Over the years, the games got bigger, the buy-ins got higher, and Molly took over running them. They moved out of the Viper Room and into private homes and hotels, and sometimes the hands would go as high as $4 million. What? In 2013, Molly was arrested, along with several others, and charged as part of an illegal sports gambling operation. She wrote a book about her experiences titled Molly's Game, which was turned into a movie starring Jessica Chastain. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. In the movie, <laughs> the name of the Viper Room is changed to the Cobra Lounge. But it's the Viper Room. 
most people hear the Viper Room and River Phoenix comes to mind. Some might know about the underground poker ring, but one of the craziest incidents associated with the place is often overlooked. Back in 2001, one of the co-owners, Anthony Fox, just up and disappeared. What? Yes. I mentioned Anthony Fox earlier in the episode. He owned the club when it was the Central, but the Central was going downhill, and that's when Uh Johnny Depp stepped in and took part ownership. Just a little background on Anthony. He was a British citizen and came from a wealthy British family that had ties to the royal family. I found this on Radar Online. His grandfather was a widely known and respected botanist that advised the royal family when it came to planting trees on the palace grounds. He, Anthony's grandfather, also bequeathed land to the UK National Trust. Anthony's mom, Maud, owned a schmancy place in Kensington, which is an extremely affluent area of London. It is said to be home to some of the richest people in the world. Her home was described as being, quote, stuffed full of rare and expensive antiques and artwork. Maud's other son was named Charles. However, Anthony was her favorite, despite that she didn't love it when he moved to the U.S. and began building a life in L.A. Anthony went back to the U.K. frequently to visit his mom, and the two were really close. She even sent him money on several occasions when he was having financial difficulties. And in this article on Radar Online, a source stated that Maud once helped Anthony fabricate a list of fake debtors in a bankruptcy filing, though no proof of this was found. But Mm. just interesting to note. The plot thickens. It does. It seemed Anthony was no stranger to money problems. When his club, The Central, started to go under and was looking like it would have to close— That's when Johnny Depp came into Anthony's life, buying a majority share in the venue and giving it new life. In the beginning, things seemed good between the two of them. Johnny had a place to play with his band and throw parties for his friends. And Anthony had a club that, thanks to Johnny, attracted Hollywood A-listers. It was a hot spot. Meanwhile, Anthony was married to a woman named Judith. Judith claims that during their marriage... Anthony began having financial problems. He told her he was going to leave the U.S. and return to the U.K., and then he staged what appeared to be his own abduction. Weird. He cut off contact with her, trashed his apartment, and disappeared. A few weeks later, Judith tracked him down. He was staying at some other woman's house, and Anthony filed for divorce from Judith in August of 1997. The two did not have any children together, but Anthony did have a daughter from a previous relationship, and by all accounts, his daughter's mother was not in the picture. Then in 1999, the relationship between Anthony and Johnny soured when Anthony sued Johnny, along with four others, for mismanagement of funds. Anthony claimed that Johnny had defrauded him of millions of dollars in profits from the Viper Room. I couldn't find the names of the other four people in the lawsuit. I assume one was Sal Jinko, who was Johnny's partner. Mm -hmm. And my guess is perhaps the other three were silent partners. I'm not sure. Shortly before Anthony was scheduled to appear in court to testify against Johnny. And when I say shortly before, I mean it was a matter of days. Anthony Fox vanished. He was last seen on Wednesday, December 19th, 2001 in Ventura County, California. His pickup truck, 
along with a 38 caliber revolver that he kept in a briefcase, also went missing. Anthony's truck was found about two and a half weeks later on January 6, 2002 in Santa Clara, California, which is about a five and a half hour drive from Ventura County. Yeah, I was going to say that's not close. Yeah. Anthony has never been found and neither has the revolver. When he disappeared, Anthony had several thousand dollars in his bank account, but there had been no activity on his accounts. So it's not like he withdrew a bunch of money to live off the grid for a while, you know. After Anthony's disappearance, theories began getting tossed around, most of which implied that Johnny Depp had something to do with Anthony going missing. Some even think Johnny had Anthony killed and that his body is buried in the basement of the Viper Room. What? Others believe Anthony either killed himself or is simply living off the grid. I mean, yeah. These are theories getting tossed around. Okay. We'll we'll talk about our thoughts after we go through it. <laughs> I have some thoughts. I have some <laughs> I can, thoughts. I about see it in your face. I see those thoughts forming. Judith, Anthony's ex-wife, claimed that she saw him in a Barnes and Noble in Montclair, California in June of 2002, five months after his truck was found abandoned. She said he was just chilling out. Maxon relaxing all cool in a chair, reading a book. And when he saw her, he, quote, had the look of terror on his face and jumped up and ran out of the store. Which, if that guy wasn't Anthony, then what was that guy's deal? <laughs> yeah, what was that about? Just freaking out at a Barnes and Noble and running out of there. Yeah, yeah. Just had an aversion to women named Judith. <laughs> Just an aversion <laughs> to women named Judith. Judith said she ran after him and when she and she saw him get into a small white Honda car. A white Honda car. That is a small white Honda. Yeah, period. That's a really good band name. White Honda car. White that's Honda a, car. That's that's a really good band name. You can have it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> when she followed him for several blocks, which is getting a little weird, Judith, yeah. uh, she then wrote down his license plate. She reported the license plate number to the police investigating his disappearance and found it was registered to a woman. Judith said that when she went to the Ventura Police Department to meet with a detective, she tried to tell them that Anthony had disappeared before, back when they were together and he staged his own kidnapping. But the detective just brushed it off. If I was investigating a missing persons case and someone came to me with firsthand knowledge that the person in question had gone missing before, I think I'd be like... Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. But according to Judith, this detective was like, me. Regarding his lawsuit against Johnny Depp, according to an article in the San Francisco... Meltdown. I malfunctioned. According the to San, an article... San Francisco Meltdown. That's another great <laughs> band name. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'll stop. I'll really stop. I'm going to rewind. Okay. Regarding his lawsuit against Johnny Depp, according to an article in the San Francisco Gate from 2003, two years after Anthony went missing, it was reported that, quote, defendant Depp breached his fiduciary duties to the corporation and to Fox as a minority shareholder. The facts establish persistent and pervasive fraud and mismanagement and abuse of authority. So at that point, according to this, it's looking like Anthony could have possibly won the lawsuit. However, at the time of his disappearance, a legal source involved in the case claims it was on the verge of being dismissed. 
Anthony's lawyer filed a lien against his estate to recover fees because Anthony never paid him. Johnny Depp ended up settling the case by selling his share of the Viper Room to Anthony's daughter. He basically wiped his hands clean of the whole thing and was like, peace out. I'm going to go live in France with my girl, Vanessa. Fast forward to 2019, when Amber Heard's legal team reached out to private investigator Paul Baresi. I think that's how you say his name. Baresi, Baresi. Uh To dig up dirt on Johnny for their trial. Paul Baresi is a renowned Hollywood fixer. In other words, he works for celebrities to help improve their image, whether it's from bad press or a messy divorce or whatever the situation may be. Baresi told the Daily Mail that Amber Heard's team had hired him to locate people who had been verbally or physically abused by Johnny Depp so that they could appear as star witnesses in the trial. Amber wanted him to dig deep as far back as he could find, and this meant looking into the disappearance of Anthony Fox. Baresi found that Maude, Anthony's mom, received a letter from him around the time of his disappearance. She told this to family members, but refused to say what was in the letter. Maude said that she was upset that she, quote, did not help him more. And family members interpreted this to mean that she wished she had given him more money. Hmm. Several people Baresi spoke with described Anthony as, quote, a man in frequent financial turmoil who could be irrational and eccentric, and that he is the type of person who would be perfectly happy living off grid. Anthony's mom had a will drawn up in 2003 in which she left half her estate to him, which at the time was valued at around 350,000 pounds or close to half a million U.S. dollars. The will stated that if he didn't appear within two years of Maude's death, the money should be held in a trust for his daughter. Maude died the following year in 2004, and according to Baresi, it is unclear if her wishes were granted. I feel like if she put him in her will after he disappeared, maybe she believed he had skipped out on his responsibilities and was living under assumed name somewhere. Yeah. It totally feels like this guy just orchestrated his own disappearance and, like you said, was living off the grid. I want to know what was in that letter he wrote her. Because he could have been like, you're not going to hear from me again. Which she could have interpreted as, I'm going to live off the grid. Or it could mean, I'm going to end my life. We'll never know because we don't know what was in the letter. Since Anthony's daughter was a minor at the time of his disappearance, she was removed from the home she shared with her dad and placed in the temporary custody of a legal representative. And according to Baresi, there was an answering machine in the home that was full of messages, but it has never been located. So what happened to that answering machine? Yeah. Did Anthony destroy it? Did he take it with him when he disappeared? Like, what was on that machine? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Dang, I was but, hoping you knew. <laughs> I mean, it does it does smack of a man who uh, had some secrets that he wanted to keep secret and was taking pains to to disappear as best as he could. It smacks of a man. It smacks of a man. <laughs> I like that's that. a, there. You go. That's another great band name. I'm just great. You're just <laughs> you're just spitting them out. I'm a font. You're on fire. In trying to dig up dirt on Johnny Depp, Baresi didn't have much luck. He said that he tracked down and interviewed over 100 people that had worked with Johnny over the past 30 years, 
but not one of them had a single complaint against him. Baresi said, quote, I went to the U.S., France, Italy, Britain, everywhere that Johnny Depp roamed, everywhere he walked. I couldn't find one instance, or at least an admitted one, where he was physically abusive to a woman. Not one said a deprecating thing. I interviewed dozens of people who knew him going as far back as three decades ago, and nobody had one bad thing to say about him. In fact, they couldn't say enough about his ever-flowing outpouring of generosity and tender heart. He went on to say, Based on people I spoke with close to Depp, he has without question proven himself a man who was generous to a fault. Dating as far back as the mid-90s, he's covered legal costs, medical bills, and even paid rent for his friends. He's a good dude. Yeah. He seems like it. Amber Heard's team ended up firing Baresi and said, quote, <laughs> they were like, well, that didn't work out for us. <laughs> they said, quote, his account is entirely inconsistent with the testimony of multiple witnesses. So just wanted to put that in there. Anthony Fox has never been found, and he is still listed as an endangered missing person. He was 53 when he disappeared and would be 74 years old today. With the building's long history, its ties to the mob, and the unsolved disappearance of one of its co-owners, you know there are bound to be some ghosts lurking around those dark corners. In 2017, Ghost Adventures did an episode on the club. I watched it while I was researching this, and they interview people that have worked there. They have all the equipment to try to make contact with spirits. It's interesting. They talked to Rita Fiora, who at the time of the taping had worked the Viper Room ticket booth for 10 years. She claims to have had several encounters with ghosts. Rita said, quote, I've had my hair yanked, a hand on my leg. Oh, yeah, they're grabby, the guy ghost. But there is a chick ghost, too. She was texting me once from a dead number. I'd talk out loud to her, and she'd text me a response. She was mad that I couldn't see her. What? That's so weird. Uh, yeah. Rita said the ghost was trying to talk to her via text and was like, why can't you see me? And so Rita thought maybe it was like a prank or something. So she had the number traced, and it was a dead number. It's believed this female ghost could possibly be a former dancer back when they were stripping and new dancing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense. Although, I mean, they wouldn't know how to text. How would they know how to text? You bring up an excellent point. Mm-hmm. Are they learning yeah. new technology in the afterlife? That's that's my question, is what kind of technology is available? Are there haunted cell phones? That's really <laughs> where we're going. I think so. Yeah. Tommy Black, who's now the general manager, but before that was a bartender at the Viper Room for 16 years, said that the downstairs definitely has a darker, more negative energy than the upstairs. He said when he worked the downstairs bar, he felt a constant pressure on his chest, and he'd see glasses inexplicably go flying off the bar. He also said that in one particular spot, people standing there would fall for no apparent reason. They'd be upright, chatting with their friends, and all of a sudden, stumble and fall to the ground. And it was always the same spot. Okay, so hold on. I yes. mean, yeah, th- there there could be a lot of reasons why people fall there. I mean, let's explore the obvious, which is maybe the floor wasn't even or something like that. Perhaps, and you're probably drunk, yeah. and you're bound to stumble. 
the constant pressure on his chest, maybe you should go to a doctor. Sure. But the glasses flying off the table, that's where I'm like, or off the bar. I'm like, well, that's something. Yeah, that's curious. That's, that's curious. Hard, that's, that's harder to explain, for sure. <laughs> Zach Baggins and his Ghost Adventures crew used a spirit box to try and capture voices. And when they listened back to it, they heard what sounded like a male voice. And at first, it's just like, <clears throat> and Rita said, oh, that's River Phoenix. It sounds exactly like him. <laughs> I, that from, uh. <laughs> I mean, it literally is. Mm. So I was skeptical. But then a little later, you hear what sounds like I get confused. And they play it over and over. And every time it sounds like I get confused. Ooh, that's creepy. It is creepy. And the crew thinks it's River and that he's confused about where he is. Like maybe he doesn't realize he's dead. Hmm. I don't know. It does sound like it's picking something up. I don't know that we can say with confidence it's River Phoenix, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, based on the history of how many people were in that space over the years, too. It's over 100 years old. One would think that more people died there than we know. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And especially with the mob activity that occurred there and just knowing what that area used to be known for, I'm sure mobsters, you know... Yeah. Had used that used that building for things other than just some a friendly game of poker, shall Correct. we say? Yeah. They also the Ghost Adventures crew also use a piece of equipment to pick up the figures of spirits, and there is a point where it does look like a human figure or the outline of one at least is walking up the stairs. Oh. It's interesting. You should watch it for yourself. It's season sixteen, episode nine, I believe. Macy Jane, a former manager of the Viper Room, claims that a person which she refused to name told her that a body is in fact buried behind the downstairs lounge in a small room with a dirt floor. And General Manager Tommy Black refuses to even enter that room. Whoa. I mean, first of all, that, that, that establishment has a room with a dirt floor is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> To think that of as many times, as many, you know, variations that building has been through, that there's still a dirt floor in the basement. I mean, have you ever been in a building that has a dirt floor in the basement? I'm sure I have. I don't know that I've ever. But it was haunted, I'm sure. Well, clearly. <laughs> Obviously. A any room with any, any house with a dirt floor, 100% <laughs> haunted. In 2019, BuzzFeed Unsolved did an episode at the club, which if you're not watching BuzzFeed Unsolved with Ryan and Shane... Do yourself a favor and check it out. Their chemistry is so fun to watch. Ryan Bergara, one of the hosts, took a spirit box into that crawl space that Macy Jane was talking about. And he asks if there's anyone buried there. And a voice seems to say, Anthony, it's, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. Shane, the other co-host of BuzzFeed Unsolved, is a total skeptic and finds spirit boxes insufferable and doesn't <laughs> believe it's a ghost saying Anthony. So watch it for yourself. You be the judge. Um, I'm going to link it in the show notes. You can find it on YouTube. I will say, so I think it was last year I went to a live episode of And That's Why We Drink. And they had gone to the Queen Mary and they had all the equipment, spirit boxes and everything. And the voices they picked up were so freaking clear. It was kind of scary. 
I feel like any skeptic would have walked out of there thinking, yeah, those ghosts were real. Hmm. I do feel like if people say there's a body buried there and there's a missing person, why haven't investigators dug up the body? That's what I can't get past. Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm also a skeptic and I feel like you would have to have a little bit more, uh, evidence i mean maybe you could hire some independent team to come and do some is there such a thing as a dirt scan where you can scan the dirt and see if there's a (laughs) a skeleton in there i just just hire a dirt scan excuse me i need to do my dirt scan they do have people that go out with like um machines to detect if there's any sort of paranormal activity or anything like that regardless of whether there's a body buried in the basement or not the mere idea of it just adds to the vibe of the Viper Room. Unfortunately, the club is mostly associated with tragedy, namely the death of River Phoenix. Mm-hmm. But it's important to mention the positive aspects from it as well. It served as a great venue for new musicians to get discovered and for experienced musicians to try out new material. On December 1st, 1993... Invitations were sent out telling people to go to the Viper Room on December 3rd. On the night of the 3rd, 150 people packed into the small venue. You had the who's who of music and movies in the place. Then Johnny Depp got up on stage and introduced the one and only Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. This marked Cash's rebirth. He was at a point in his career where he felt like maybe he was done. The industry had pretty much written him off at that point. But producer Rick Rubin wanted to work with him and get him on his label American Recordings. So the two began recording some songs together. And Rick said, how would you feel about trying some of these out in front of a live audience? Thus, the performance at the Viper Room. Rick Rubin said, quote, it was an incredible night dead silent. You could hear a pin drop. People couldn't believe it was Johnny Cash there in the Viper Room. People who were there still talk about it being one of the greatest things they've ever seen. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers said, quote, Johnny Cash came on and sat down there and rocked. No bullshit, no fooling around, just played these incredible songs and destroyed the place. So he does all these new songs for his upcoming album, and two of them, Tennessee Stud and The Man Who Couldn't Cry, were recorded live that night, and those live versions are on the album. Ooh, I'm going to look those up. Yeah. After playing for 45 minutes, he leaned down to his wife, June Carter Cash, who was sitting in the front row, and said, what do I do now? And she said, well, (laughs) sing your hits. So he did. (laughs) It was the first time Johnny performed solo, as in without any other musicians, just him and his guitar. Johnny Depp viewed Cash's performance there as sort of a cleansing for the Viper Room. He felt like it changed the energy after River's death and gave the club a positive vibe. It was a rebirth for Cash as well. In April of 1994, Cash's album American Recordings was released to huge critical success. And in 1995, it won a Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album. In 1993, Counting Crows released their first album, August and Everything After. I had that album. I loved that album. Great album. And after it came out, it was a huge hit. Adam Duritz, the lead singer, had this sudden newfound fame. And it seemed like it was a bit overwhelming at first for him. So he turned to the Viper Room. 
but not to play in the small venue. No, he wanted to bartend. Between 1994 and 95, Adam Duritz was a bartender at the club. Really? Yeah. Singer Mark McGrath from the band Sugar Ray said that he went to the Viper Room before he was anyone, before Sugar Ray had any success. He knew one guy there that was able to get him in. And so Mark, Mark McGrath goes in, he goes up to the bar, and Adam Duritz turns and says, can I help you? And Mark said to him, wow, man, the record business is a cruel mistress. I just heard your song <laughs> on the way over here. But it wasn't that Adam was on hard times. He just wanted to have a normal job so he could feel normal. The Pussycat Dolls, founded by choreographer Robin Anton, along with her friend, actress Christina Applegate, debuted at the Viper Room in 2005 and became a weekly act, often featuring celebrities as guest performers. A lot of cool things have, have come out of the Viper Room, but if you want to check out the venue for yourself, you don't have a lot of time left because, as Matt mentioned earlier, it is scheduled to be demolished this year to make room mm. for a luxury high-rise building that will house a hotel, apartments, restaurants, a music venue, and a recording studio. The development says that the new building will include original Viper Room material, but it's not going to be the same. I, yeah, I wish I'd yeah. gone when I lived there, um, but I just, yeah, I didn't. And now I'm like, ah, I want to yeah. get there. I wish I'd gone in uh, when I was yeah. there, but it, I'm glad I got to see it. I'm glad I got to see that little stretch of, of sunset mm -hmm. before it, it flipped over. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely driven past there, but I never went inside. I couldn't find an exact date for when it's set to be demolished, but according to the Viper Room's website, there are shows scheduled through May, and then there's nothing on the production calendar after that. Mm. Yeah, that's not a good sign. I'm curious what you think happened to Anthony Fox. You, Matt, do you think he died by suicide? Do you think he was murdered? Do you think he's just living a whole ass other life on the other side of the world somewhere? I mean, I think he orchestrated his own disappearance. I think... I, I don't think he was killed. I definitely don't think Johnny Depp was involved. I think he was a man with money problems. If he was also described as being erratic and, uh, and eccentric, uh, it makes sense that, and especially if Judith saw him in a Barnes and Noble. Um, I mean, that's what she says. Yeah. I, I believe Judith. Why would Judith lie? I don't know. I, I often think that rich people, when they start to experience money problems, it puts them into, I think, far more of a uh, an erratic state than others. Perhaps I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just saying I think he I think he orchestrated his own disappearance. I think. So that, you think he's out there somewhere if he hasn't I died think, of natural causes? I no, I think he's probably dead, but I don't think that he. <laughs> I don't think that he killed himself or that it, or he could have killed. Himself. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know. Yeah. I don't think that he uh, is buried in the Viper Room. I will I will say that. I don't think he's buried in the Viper Room. I don't think Johnny Depp had anything to do with it. Yeah, um, agreed. Unfortunately, I think Johnny Depp got sort of roped into it because at the time that Anthony filed the lawsuit, Johnny Depp was already making millions. He had done... Crybaby, 21 Jump Street, Edward Scissorhands, Benny and June, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Donnie Brasco, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which he had Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, he did a talk with him at the Viper Room, which I thought was cool. Mm. And Sleepy Hollow. All of those 
along with others, had come out already at the time of this lawsuit. I don't know that Johnny needed to mismanage funds or hide funds from Anthony Fox. Do I think that the other people Anthony sued might have been doing that? Maybe. I don't know. It, yeah, it seems like a cash grab. Yeah, yeah, it seems a little odd, especially if Anthony was known to have money problems. But I think he could very well have died by suicide. I don't know. But I was looking at a map of Chestnut Street in Santa Clara, which is where his truck was found. Mm-hmm. It's not that far from the water. Yeah. And I thought, okay, the the gun's never been found. His body has never been found. Did he go out to the water? Maybe there was a bridge. And did he shoot himself and fall into the water, thereby the gun going with him? I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, this is total speculation. People think it's strange that he would have done that considering he left a daughter behind. They say that he loved his daughter. He would never leave her. But whether he died by suicide or he just went to live another life, he, he did leave her. I mean, he vanished. I don't know. It's it's really strange. I think Maude is an interesting character. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, but I buy that story, though. I buy that story of, of he he fakes his own disappearance and then I think is overwhelmed by loneliness and grief and money problems and takes his own life at some point. I, I buy that story. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't, I mean, he never did resurface in order to claim his inheritance. So that tells me that he was no longer alive at that point. Yeah. Because if you're a man with money problems and the reason you're disappearing is because you have money problems, you're going to claim half a million dollars. I would think. Yeah, that's a lot of money to leave on the table. I yeah. mean, I would. I'd be like, give me that money. Um, but we want to know what you think. You can leave it in the comments on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. At Horwood Podcast. Or email us at... Horwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us out so much. And if you're feeling generous... Go on over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Horwood Podcast. Thanks, Matt. That was perfect. I tried to do a good job on those to make sure people <laughs> could really hear them. Excellent. Um, and thanks for being here. Thanks for, I know, I know you had to travel so far to I get did. here. I had to go all the way upstairs, and <laughs> it, <laughs> but it was real pleasant. Yay, I'm glad. And I'm glad we finally are getting this episode out. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. We beat the curse. Uh, let's go um, eat some food or something. Yeah. Let's go find that Frankie. Frankie! Frankie! Frankie!